There's a Bible somewhere in front of you, if you don't have one. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. I also ask that you would, each of us would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to what God would have to say to us this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.17, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, we are celebrating on Easter Sunday that Christ has been raised. But Paul says, well, what if He didn't? It's a strange thing for an apostle to say. But he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, these are His two implications. One, your faith is futile. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, None of us should be here in this room right now. I mean, we should not even go to church on Easter. And a lot of people, you may be one of them, Christmas and Easter, put in your time. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead... It is a waste of your two hours on Easter Sunday to sit in church. There's some good playoffs going on right now. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you and I should be watching the playoffs right now at home. Our faith would be totally futile, worthless, pointless. And his second implication, you are still in your sins. This is what he says. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, number one, you shouldn't be in church. And number two, you should be totally depressed. Because you are still in your sin. You stand before God sinful, um, an, an offender of God, a breaker of God's law, a violator of God's will. And you stand, according to God's Word, condemned before Him. You're guilty. You have no reason to give to God to forgive you or to allow you to come into fellowship with Him in heaven. You are still in your sins if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So if Jesus is still dead, then there is no Christianity. If Jesus is still dead, there is no Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I don't care if He, he was a good teacher, He was a, a, a good religious leader, He was a, a spiritual helper. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you should not, we should not sing songs to Him. We should not worship Him. We should not follow Him. We should not hope in Him. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there are millions of people that are totally 
totally deluded today who call themselves Christians. Jesus claimed to be a king. And if he did not rise from the dead, then he never conquered anything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he is a worthless king. Read the accounts of the Gospels. He did no conquering in his lifetime. He did no conquering in his lifetime. So if he did not conquer in his death, then he is no king. So did Jesus raise from the dead? We're going to ask that question. What is the resurrection? Why should we believe in the resurrection? Make a case for that. And then looking at Ephesians 1, what are specifically for us as Christians, what are a few of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus? Let's pray. We'll start. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We are thankful that you have loved us. That your love has gone before us. That you have provided for us. That you have protected us. That you have led us. Jesus, we ask that now as we read your word, that you would convince us and compel us of your resurrection. That we would not leave this place believing a lie about you, but that we would leave this place knowing the truth. Believing that you are a risen king. That you raised from the dead, never to die again, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And may that truth impressed upon us cause us to live differently as we live according to the greatest news there is. So please do this work in us and through us according to your Spirit and in accordance with your Word. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Now first, what is biblical resurrection? When the Bible talks about resurrection, what does it mean? Two things it does not mean. There is a difference between someone being resurrected and someone dying and being born again to live another life or what is called reincarnation. Resurrection is not reincarnation. Resurrection is not you die and then you are born again to live some new life. Uh, reincarnation is built on principles of second chances. If you screw that, it's a very attractive belief. If you mess this up, hey, no big deal. You'll come back. I mean, you might be a frog or something, but you'll come back. You'll get another shot at this. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that every man is destined to die one time and then to face judgment. So there is no other lives. Resurrection is nothing like reincarnation. There's also a difference between resurrection and someone being brought back to this life. That's not resurrection. Where someone appears to or does die and then they are brought back to live this life only to die again. Okay, that would technically be called revivation. That also is not resurrection. 
Not when somebody dies and comes back to life only to live again. There's examples of that in the Bible. You read about Elisha raising someone back to life in 2 Kings. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter back to life who had died. In John chapter 11, you remember Jesus' close friend Lazarus dies and he brings him back to life. Or the disciples, Peter and Paul, both in Acts chapter 9, Peter raises Dorcas back to life. And in Acts chapter 20, remember Eutychus is on the balcony while Paul is preaching. Imagine that. And falls off and dies in the middle of a sermon. And Paul raises him back to life. You know, and they didn't go on to write these books, you know, 10 minutes in hell or anything like that. I mean, but they died and, and they were raised back to life. But here's the thing, each and every one of them, right? Each and every one of them, Talitha, Dorcas, Eutychus, Lazarus, they all died again. So they were brought back to this life, but then they died again. That is not resurrection. Here's what your Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have uh, material bodies and we have immaterial souls. Okay, so every single one of us, we have a body that you can see and feel and touch. You have a body, but you also have a soul. Okay, and at death, okay, here's what happens at death. The separation occurs. At death, the immaterial soul is separated from our material body. And your body your body is just, it's a shell. Okay? And your body goes in the ground. When you, or in a box, or in an urn, or something, or spread over the Pacific Ocean. Whatever you decide to do with your body, it doesn't matter. Your body, it, it's done. It's no longer going to be used. But your soul, okay, your soul, it does not die with your body. Every one of us has a soul that is going to live eternally. And here's what the Bible teaches. Okay, whether or not we have put our faith in Jesus and trusted Him, that determines the state of our soul after the moment in which we die. If we, to boil down faith and trust in Jesus to loving the true Jesus of the Bible, if we love Jesus, our soul goes to be with Jesus. Our soul goes to be with Him. If we do not love Jesus, our soul does not go to a place called paradise where we are full of joy. We go to a place of torment. Or I believe the Bible describes a place called Hades. And these two places, either with Jesus or away from Jesus, joy or suffering, okay, is a place where our souls rest before the resurrection. It happens before the resurrection. Revelation 20.13. This is at the very end of time as we know it. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. So when we die, we go to, we say, heaven or hell. But technically, you don't go initially to the new heavens and the earth, new earth or to hell. You go to a place that is a foretaste of that. And we will go to that place upon the resurrection. So your Bible says in Luke 23.43, remember Jesus says to the thief on the cross, who has not loved Jesus his whole life, but now loves Jesus, 
giving us great hope for our friends that they can be saved even in their last breath. But he loves Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Or then if we see these two places in Luke 16, 22 and 23 brought together, the poor man died and was carried to the angels, to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The poor man loves Jesus. The rich man does not love Jesus. And then listen. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, who was the poor man, at his side. One in paradise, awaiting eternal bliss. The other soul in a place of torment, awaiting eternal hell. And this is life after death, according to your Bible. But, there, this is the great hope. There is life after life after death. There's actually life after that life after death. And that is the resurrection. And the resurrection is the reuniting of our body and our soul. Resurrection then is the reversal of death. Think of it that way. So death is the separation of my soul and my body. Resurrection is the reunion of my soul and my body. Resurrection is what Christians believe happened to Jesus. That was Jesus alive again, never to die again. And the hope of Christians is that the resurrection of Jesus is as promised the first fruits of what every Christian also will experience in this life after life after death. We will not just be these souls. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't want to go to heaven. I can remember thinking that because it did not sound enjoyable. I mean, I pictured myself like a, you know, this, this wispy thing, this soul that was just sort of floating around on clouds or something. And there was this kind of bright light. And that, especially to a kid, that does not oh, I'd love to just be a, a wispy thing on clouds. I mean, I didn't want that. I wanted, you know, what I enjoy here and what I love here, but I wanted that, you know, times a million. And to me, that seemed like that would be what I would expect this eternal great thing to be. And in fact, as I'm growing and as we grow in our understanding, we see that God is building a new heavens and a new earth. It is a new physical place that is like this, but it is completely absent of all sin. Imagine earth and imagine a humanity where there is no sin. It would be perfect. It would be glorious. And we are there in this new place with new perfect resurrected bodies. I'm only 34 years old and I already feel my body going downhill. I'm, th I'm 34. 
And I wake up and I can't move some morning. It's just ridiculous. I'm already, right? I'm crying out. I'm wanting, and you should too. I'm longing for a perfect body. I tell my boys, you know, they're, they're growing, and they, they, want, they want to slam dunk a basketball. And I can't slam dunk a basketball. But, you know, I lift them up, and we, we imitate that. But we talk and say, listen, I am pretty sure in the new heavens and the new earth, when you have your new body with these awesome calves, you, it will be no problem. We play this game NBA Jam when they're doing flips and he's, they're on fire and they're doing 360. I'm like, that's, gonna, that's the new heavens and the new earth right there. Basketball, I think. I don't know. I hope. So that, that, right, that Paul says, if that didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have nothing to be happy about. We have no reason to go to church. We have no reason to worship. But if that's true, so this is a really big deal. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead and this is true, that has enormous implications for every single one of you. You can't just come on Easter. You can't just live a life that is, is what you think is your version of pleasing to God, but it's totally separate from what he commands and asks of you in his word. You can't live a life where God is somehow secondary. He must be primary if Jesus rose from the dead. So we've got to figure, do we believe that this is true? And so, why we should believe in the resurrection? A, a, a few things. Biblical evidence, some historical evidence, and I'll, I'll go through these quickly. One thing that is something to take note of, because the, the, the accusation is this is just all made up that this is just some people who, who wanted to start a religion. It's like a cult, like any other cults, and they just made things up. They wrote a book, and they, they made it sound appealing. And people, but, but here's some things to remember. First of all, the idea of resurrection, the uniting of the body and the soul, was an extremely unpopular idea in the culture that the New Testament was written. It was primarily Gnostic. They looked at the, the body. They looked at the material as a bad thing. They saw our body as a prison, so all of your, your well-known Greek philosophers like Homer and Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, okay, they all rejected this idea. Who would, and, and who would want? Who would want the soul to be reunited with the body? And so at the time the Bible is being written, this isn't written to, so that it will appeal to some people and tell them what their itching ears want to hear so they can gather people around them to build a new religion. This was an extremely unpopular idea. Nobody wanted to die and have their soul resurrected to their body. In fact, Judaism and Christianity were the only two religions that we know of that were promoting this physical resurrection. Some things to note in your Bible. Isaiah and Jesus both predicted the resurrection. Isaiah hundreds, centuries, okay, centuries before it actually happened. And Jesus, before it happened, predicted the resurrection. Jesus appeared physically, not just spiritually. Jesus appeared physically after his death. He appeared to his family. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to his friends. At one point, he appeared to over 500 people. Jesus' resurrection was celebrated in the earliest church creeds. Understand Christianity and everything, even in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's short creed of the gospel. Okay, they are centering their, their beliefs around Jesus rising from the dead. They believed this with all of their heart. Jesus' resurrection convinced his own family to worship him as God. Think about that. His own family, his mother, his brothers. James, 
who originally rejected Jesus as the Savior. After his resurrection, he ended up being a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because he believed that his brother was resurrected from the dead. I mean, think about your, if there's anybody who would be hard to convince that you're God, it's your family. It's one thing to just go take some people off the street and say, hey, I'm God. You can find some crazies out there that will say, really, we'll, we'll listen. But your family, your family knows you. They know everything about you. His family worshipped him as God. Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by even his worst enemies, like the Apostle Paul, who raged, okay, who raged against the church, against Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and spent the rest of his life to his death promoting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was no special effects back then. It wasn't some optical illusion, some circumstantial Evidence. These things aren't conclusive, but you can make some interesting inferences. One is that Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. I mean, think about that. He was buried in a tomb that belonged to a very famous rich man. It was very easy to find. If you were going to plan this religion and you were going to pretend that Jesus raised from the dead, maybe you would put the tomb in a very difficult place to find or an obscure place. Not a place that anybody and everybody could go see if the claim was true. And when word went out in Jerusalem that Jesus raised from the dead, everyone could go because it was easy to find and they could see that this enormous stone that would have to be leveraged into place was gone and the tomb was totally empty. Anybody who wanted to could go and verify this. Another thing to note, the tomb of Jesus was not enshrined. Think about that. The tomb of Jesus was not enshrined. Unlike Abraham, unlike Muhammad, unlike Buddha, okay, his tomb was not enshrined. Why was it not enshrined? It was a cave. It was empty. There was nothing to enshrine. One historian has discovered of at least 50 other tombs of religious leaders around this time that had been enshrined. Jesus' tomb was not because there was no body in the tomb. The day of worship in the church changed from Saturday to Sunday. It changed in Acts, you see, they begin meeting on the first day of the week. And they begin meeting on the first day of the week because they all believed in the resurrected Jesus. And I think, I think the most, for me, the most validating circumstantial evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is the changed life of his disciples. Eleven men went from being totally timid to being courageous because they met the resurrected Jesus. His claims were true, and if he was for them, who could be against them? Every one of them, all 11 disciples, historically, you see this outside the Bible, were loyal to Jesus to their death. And do you think they would be loyal to the death if they knew it was a big hoax? At some point, don't you say, okay, time out. Okay, I wanted, I wanted to build a church, wanted to get some people, wanted some cash flow, but this is getting out of hand. You're about to kill me. Okay. Just kidding, we stole the body, okay? It's down at the bottom of the lake, okay? 
They don't do that. Every one of them to their death says Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He told us he was going to do it. He actually did it. We put our hand in his hand. We felt the scars. We walked with him. He made us breakfast. True story. We spent time with him. He taught us. He preached us. He's filled us with his spirit. There's no doubt in our mind that this is true. And they live totally radical lives for him because they believe that he rose from the dead. And these were exemplary men. These weren't, these weren't men that you could look at and say, look at their character and look at them. Look at the way they lived their lives. They lived ex- exemplary lives, following God, holy lives, morally upright lives, serving Jesus. There was nothing you could say to discredit these men. And they died. All of them saved John. Every one of them died. And they could have escaped their death if they would have said, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. I denounce my faith. Every one of them. That's all they had to say. They would have been freed. But they were so sure that Jesus rose from the dead. There's been some explanations of the empty tomb, some of them humorous. One was that the body was stolen. This was the Jews' explanation actually at the time. Historically, it's true. The tomb was empty. But there's some different explanations that historians try to give. The tomb was guarded by guards, though, and there was a huge rock in place. So you need a pretty serious Jewish SWAT team to remove the body. And at one point, I mentioned this, at one point, why don't they recover the body at some point when the heat gets turned on? Uh, Jesus did not die on the cross. He actually fainted, is one belief. He didn't die on the cross. He actually fainted. One one theory is that a twin brother, seriously, a twin brother died in Jesus' place. Like that movie, The Prestige, if you saw that. A twin brother died in Jesus' place and the disciples and others hallucinated is another explanation. They just hallucinated. Him dying, him rising from the dead, him coming to them over and over again. It was just one big hallucination. Historians who don't believe the Gospel have fought for centuries to disprove the resurrection. Why? Because if the resurrection is true and Jesus rose from the dead, that has implications for our life. So we have to do something with that empty tomb. Everybody has to do something with this empty tomb. And you will either come up with a crazy story to disprove that Jesus rose from the dead, or you will accept the truth that He did rise from the dead and figure out how you need to change your life to accord with the truth of the Gospel. One guy went as far as to say is that, well, John the Baptist, we think that he was associated with the Essenes, and we think that maybe the Essenes um, had a lot of psychoactive drugs that they used, and one of those drugs may have been a drug called reserpine, and and reserpine, one doctor in Canada gave that to a rat, and it put the rat into a coma for three days. (laughs) So somebody finds that and says, that's what must have happened. They gave him a drug and he went into a coma and then they went and got him after three days. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with the resurrection. Here's our conclusion. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He conquered death. So Ephesians 1.15, read this. 
Paul is writing to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15. He's writing to the Ephesians, and as Paul often does, he writes out his prayer for them. This is how he's praying for them. This is how he would be praying for us. As your pastor, this is how I'm praying for you, for my family. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what he prays. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. And then he goes on. So his, his prayer is that they would be enlightened. Right? That they would have a spirit of wisdom. They would know something. Revelation in the knowledge of God. Having the eyes of their heart enlightened. That you may know. His prayer, as it often is, is that they would grasp a truth. See, many times we pray, and our prayers end up consumed with God. Will you change this circumstance? Will you make this different? I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. I think this would be a better way. God, do it this way. There's nothing wrong with praying like that. But when our prayers become consumed that way and kind of like a grocery list of what we want God to do, our prayers are imbalanced compared to prayers in our Bible. Paul is praying predominantly that the people would know there's something they need to know. There's something that we need to know. There's something we need to believe. There's something we need to see with our hearts. And if we would only see that, we would live totally differently. Our lives would change. Our circumstances would, would change if the eyes of our hearts were opened to see and understand and grasp something. That's why the book of Romans, all the way up to chapter 6, verse 11, Paul doesn't give a single instruction. It's all doctrine. It's all teaching. It's all, you need to know this. You need to know this. No application. No practical insight. Nothing. Just you need to know what God's Word says. And now... Live accordingly. Live according to who Jesus is and who you are in Christ. Know this. That's Paul's prayer. He says three things. Three things that he wants them to, to know and to understand. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. That's the first one. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's the second one. And the third one that we're going to look at as it applies to the resurrection. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? And what you're going to see, He's going to use now five verses to describe that one. This is what He really wants them to grasp. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you as a Christian. Ephesians, Veritas. I want you to know 
how immeasurable is the greatness of God's power in you. And then he's going to use five different ways here to describe that. We're going to boil it into three. He's going to compare it to something. He's unpacking this so that we would understand how great this power is. And what he is saying is that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that God works in us. Now don't, don't just glaze over that. The pow- whatever kind of power that it takes and it took from God to raise Jesus from death to live again, it is that power that is working in us as Christians right now. So in the resurrection of Jesus, you see a portrayal, is what he's going to say, you see a portrayal of God's power that is working in you as a Christian. And he wants us to know this power. He doesn't say, I want you, as is popular today, to get the power. He doesn't say, I want you to get this power. He doesn't say, I want you to find this power. I want you to say something to get this power within you. He says, you have this power at work in you, and you don't even know it. You don't, isn't that us? When I hear God talk about the greatness of his power, I think, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't think I feel that normally. I mean, immeasurable greatness of God. I don't know that, I mean, I know it in, in, I read it in the Bible, but in an experiential way. I don't know if I know this power. Do we acknowledge this power? Do we appreciate this power in us? Do we on a day-to-day basis, do we rely on this power? We don't. Which is why Paul prays. God, make them know the greatness of your power that is in them as followers of Jesus Christ. So our prayer, God, make us know this. That we would feel this. That we would rely on this. That we wouldn't live on our own strength. That we wouldn't forget this. That we would be applying it and thanking Him for it, and depending on it. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 19, The immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to... So now he's going to give examples and say, the power that is in you, here's how he's going to describe it, it is like this power according to... According to, first of all, the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Not one of us can defeat death. Not one of us can cheat death. 
Not one of us can avoid death. Death comes to us all. There are many things that many people can escape. Not one of you can escape death. Jesus beat death. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So Paul says there is a sense in which I am dead. I have trusted Jesus. I've been united to Him. His work has become my work. His blessings have become my blessing. And, and this old me, the flesh, the sinful me, the rebellious me, it has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. I will not suffer the consequences for this in the life to come. Because Jesus paid the penalty. So I have been, it's as if I have been crucified with Christ. He says, I am dead and then in another sense, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So if you read Paul, he says, I'm dead. And then he says, no, I was dead and I'm alive. So he says in Galatians, I was alive and now I'm dead. But then he says in Ephesians, well, I was dead, but now I've been made alive. How can you be this dead and alive at the same time? How can both these truths be true? And the answer is in the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And our be uniting, being united to Him in His death, therefore, our sin has died in Christ. The wages of our sin, which is death and eternal alienation from God, is no longer over us. It is dead. It is gone. But Jesus rose from the dead. We are united to Him in His resurrection as well. And we as Christians live new lives, born again lives for Him, with Him, through Him. He says the power that is in you, Christian, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. This thing, if you're a Christian, okay, this thing called death that comes to us all, it will no longer be a pathway to your ruin. It will be your pathway to paradise. The Christian welcomes death. The Christian welcomes death. It is the pathway to paradise, which is why Paul says, for me to live is Christ. So as long as I'm here, I'm going to enjoy and love and serve Christ. But when my day comes, okay, it will be a sad day and it will be a day of mourning for those who are around me but it will be a day of great happiness because I'm going to be with Jesus. So if you're a Christian, death is not this pathway to alienation from God. It is the pathway. If you're a Christian, there will never, 
ever be a moment where you are out of fellowship with Jesus. There will never be a moment where you are out of fellowship with Jesus. You are in fellowship with him now. You will be in your death and upon your death, you will be in his presence. The fellowship will only, if you're a Christian, your fellowship with Jesus will only grow more intense and complete. That power is the power that is working in us. He goes on and says, this power, the immeasurable greatness of His power, it's also according to the working of His great might that seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So the power that made Jesus king is the power that is working in you as a Christian. The power that put everything, Satan and, 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 and his horde of demons... All of that, the Bible teaches, has been put under the feet of Jesus. So Jesus rules over everything. It gives us exhaustive list. He rules over all of that. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That power that put everything subject to Jesus is the power that is working in us as Christians. This is why we are taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil. Because He is the one who can deliver us from evil. He is the only one who can deliver us from evil because He has put evil as a footstool beneath Jesus. He rules over everything. So when we are oppressed, when we are depressed, when we are afflicted, when we are in sin, we cry out to God. And we ask, we ask God for help. And we ask Him for help because we know that His power that is ruling over everything is the power that is in us as Christians. We don't do this on our own strength. But we try. We try to work this out on our own. We try to white-knuckle it. This is where we don't even think to acknowledge or rely on God's power. We don't believe that He is able. We don't believe that He is willing. We don't believe that we deserve that. And so we've got to prove ourselves to Him and do this on our own. But God's Word says, pray. Deliver us from evil. Demons are waging war against God's people 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And if you have experienced any measure of deliverance from the enemy, then it is this power right here, this immeasurable power that is working in you. That is the reason. You and I right now, we are surviving because God is loving us and helping us. It is the immeasurable greatness of His power, the power of the resurrection that is in us today. 
And that power of God that is encouraging you, that is keeping you, that is, friends, restraining you from being as bad as you could be, that power of God is working in you while you sleep. It is working in you while you complain. It is working in you while you sin against the giver of this power. Christian, God is loving you. God is serving you. God is preserving you. God is helping you. And He is doing this in spite of your sin. You think when you go to sleep tonight that the powers and principalities that Ephesians 6 describes, Satan and his flock, you think they break? No. God is always protecting you. You know, when bad things happen, we tend to shake our fist at God. And we never bother to think about the countless things that that God has saved us from. What about the pain? What about the suffering that you have never even tasted and you were so close to tasting it? You were so close to experiencing it. You were so close to having to go right through the center of that fire. You didn't even know it though because God in His grace delivered you. He rescued you. He preserved you. He guided you. He loved you. You didn't have any idea what He was saving you from. You still have no idea to thank Him, to pray him he didn't do it for that you are his child he loves you his great power worked in you to keep you and to save you and to protect you and maybe even those around you whom you would have hurt and you have God to thank for this you have his resurrection power it is not some small power that works in you to overcome the power of Satan and sin in your life. It is resurrection power. Without this power from on high, you give in to sin all the time, every time. But God is commonly gracious to the entire world and He is especially gracious to His children. We should thank Him and praise Him and acknowledge this power. You didn't have a good day. God had a good day in you to Him. He gets the worship and the praise. Do not pat yourself on the back. And if you do, the Bible tells you, get ready for a big fall tomorrow. God will humble you and teach you that it is not your strength, it is His strength. What kind of strength? Resurrection power in you. That's what Paul is saying, and I want you to know this, he says. It's not some prayer you have to pray to get this power. This power is in you. God is working in you. See it. Open your eyes. And he compares it again. And in this, this verse, just I'm not even going to get into it because I'm, I think, 20 years from grasping what he's saying. He also compares this power and says it's like the great might that God worked when He put 
all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's us Christians, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I I think we could try to grasp this for the next 30 years, what he's saying about the immeasurable greatness of this power. And he ends with this, and still never scratch the surface. God intends to be glorified in His creation. Man. Man is the the pinnacle of God's creation. And God intends to be glorified in man. And you read Genesis 3 and you read that we blew it. And you read the pages of your life and you know you blew it. And you blow it over and over and over again. But, but God, and this is the church, God is making for Himself a new humanity. He's making for Himself a new people with a new Adam. Okay, and the new Adam, the Bible says, Romans 5, is Jesus. A new humanity, which is the church, and, and, a, and a new Adam. And he, he is going to make a new universe. This is the new heavens and the new earth. This is the greatness of God's power working in us. He's going to make this new universe, this new heavens and the new earth, where His fil- fullness, just think about that, His fullness will fill all in all. I don't even know if Paul knew what he was saying when he was writing this. I mean, how do you possibly contain what this is saying? This new place where His fullness will fill all in all in the new heavens and the new earth. His glory is going to fill every square inch. Every, everything. It will be, there will be no dark corners anymore. It will be spread everywhere, anywhere. God's glory, only His glory. And this fullness is called the church. Through His people, He's going to be glorified. What kind of power does that take? We can't even conceive or comprehend. And Paul is saying, this is the immeasurable greatness of the power that is in you, Christian, that I want you to know, to believe trust. So we we must pray that we would see this truth and know this truth. And we, just like the Ephesians, we cannot grasp this apart from God answering prayer for Him to cause us to grasp this. It's not as simple as just re-listening to the sermon on Wednesday. We need to be on our knees. Saying, God, take this truth off these pages and put this truth in my heart. That when I rise tomorrow, I will live differently knowing, believing the immeasurable greatness of Your resurrection power working in me. May I be more grateful. May I be more thankful. May I be more ready 
to come to you and appeal to your power in me. For without it, I have no hope. But we have none of this. We have none of this hope. We have none of this inheritance. And we have none of this power. If Jesus, as Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 15, did not rise from the dead. So the good news is Jesus rose from the dead. So in response to God's truth, we're going to come to our time now of our Holy Communion. I know this is printed in their weekly page you have as well, but anybody who is here, we would welcome all who are baptized Christians, who are willing to forsake their sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and who are members of churches that preach the gospel. If you fit in that, you are welcomed to share this time of communion with us. We'll have leaders up here who want to serve you. And we would just ask that um, once you've got those emblems taken back to your seat, hold on to them. We're done. I'll lead us as a family together in taking the bread and the juice and we'll continue our worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, awaken our hearts even now as we continue to worship you in song. Awaken, awaken us. Stir in us like you stirred in Samson. Cause us to walk in all of your ways. Cause us to worship you now. Cause us to grasp this great power that you mean for us to grasp. If some of us are living lives that are totally not pleasing to you, running away from you instead of toward you, Awaken us now to Your truth and to Your Word that we may run to You and worship You and love You and serve You. May this time of communion where we renew this covenant that we have with You, may we recommit again ourselves to You, our Creator, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our greatest treasure. And we give You all praise, God. We give You all glory. We give You all honor. And we pray these things in the great name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Bah.